0: I don't want any child to feel the way that I felt. I felt left behind. I felt ignored. I felt not listened to. So as a CEO now, we're responsible for 31,000 young people from three year olds up to, to 18 year olds. They're precious for us. And we want to make sure that they're loved. We want to make sure that we understand their starting point and we want to find their passion for what they can do.
1: Hello and welcome to The Educators, a podcast series by Capita and Becoming X that explores how we can transform learning to help everyone realise their potential. I'm Frankie McCamley, a journalist and broadcaster. This time we're focused on the value of personal development, building the broader skills, attitudes and character we all know young people need. Often, your whole way of being, the things you care about, the things that drive you, stem from formative moments in your childhood. That's certainly the case for today's guest. These days, he oversees the work of over 50 academy schools and has taken 40 schools from failing to good in inspections. But he could so easily have fallen out of education altogether.
0: My name's John Murphy. I'm the CEO of Oasis Community Learning. I expressed it to myself recently when I was doing some work on myself. All my life, I have felt not good enough, not helped by the education system, and I'm I'm passionate about it. Our children are precious. Every minute counts for them. Every day counts for them. Every conversation counts for them. The way that we role model what we expect from our young people, how much we love them, how much we show we love them, making sure they're well fed, making sure the little things we do brilliantly for our young people, it matters. Why? Because I can see myself in them.
1: It all stems from one of John's earliest childhood memories, still etched in his mind.
0: When I was five or six, I remember being in class in reception. I was taught by a a very strict nun. She scared me so much that I was scared every time I was learning. Before I went home for lunch one day, she said, I can remember saying, John Murphy, what's this? And it was a capital H on the wall. And because I was so fearful of her, I just froze. And I went home, had my lunch. My mum said, oh, you don't, you know, are you okay? And I was just panicking. I said, there's something on the wall. And I didn't know what it was. And from that time, that's the earliest, one of the earliest memories I've got from that time, I always struggled with reading and writing. In school, I was sent on a bus and you went to a special centre in the afternoon where you played a lot, and they taught you to read a little bit, but it just still didn't go in, it still didn't work. And for me, in many ways, it culminated um, when I came home again from primary school when I was in year six, you know, 10, and my mum then told me that my uh, sister had been killed in a car accident. Sorry, And we were a big family. The family are incredibly committed to each other. My mum and dad did a brilliant job. But at the same time, when you're struggling to read and write, when something devastating like that happens in your family, the whole family freezes. The rest of my brothers and sisters had already passed the 11+. I failed 11 plus. I was left in the school where no one else wanted to be, and it was a failing school. And so then I went on to successfully fail my GCSEs in the same way. And I was lucky enough that my parents were able to support me by going back down a year and starting the whole thing again and taking those GCSEs again. And I finally got them. But it was my sister, my second elder sister, who actually helped me over a summer to really learn to read and write, to learn how to write a story. And because I got that specific tutoring, that was the turnaround point for me. But um, school for me was not a great experience at all. And so the whole of my life, it feels like I've been dominated about wanting to catch up, wanting to be successful. You know, I do rewards evenings now for children, but I've never had a reward as a child. I never had any sort of school reward whatsoever. So you think about the culture that you want to create. You think about the environment that you want to create. You think about the fact that when I went to it's my secondary school and my sister had just died, not a single teacher ever mentioned my sister. You need that very specific, Support you need teachers with the emotional intelligence. You need schools where there's high quality mental health support Where children who are facing all sorts of things and the children in our Oasis academies have got have faced many traumas But what you've got to do is you've got to you've got to meet them where they start That means that that all of our staff would be trained in something called adverse childhood experiences And that means that if a child turns up late instead of saying you're late I'll change the question altogether and say have you had breakfast? Are you okay? nice to see you do come in and instead of castigating them for being late, you welcome them into classroom, you make the difference that way instead.
1: Like everyone we've met in this educators series, John is passionate about how we support and develop young people, making sure no one is left behind. And right now, he feels there's room for improvement.
0: My concerns about the British education system at the moment is that it doesn't really focus on... Are young people flourishing in the way that they should and they could do. So whilst a lot of the world globally has gone towards attitude, skills, teamwork, independent research and knowledge, England has gone towards a knowledge-rich curriculum. And so I think undoubtedly the education system's gone the wrong way. And what it seems to lack is that sense of passion What are children really interested in? There's such a focus on the basics, the English and the maths. But if you've got a young person, for example, who has a love of dance, our education should be about lighting fires. It should be about turning around to our young people and saying, I'm gonna find out what you're good at and I'm gonna drive that passion with you and for you. But I think at the moment, it's incredibly limited. The biggest test for me as an educator was when I was a head teacher, I was was drafted in by a local authority to take over a school in special measures. And it was a school for boys with emotional behaviour difficulties. A lot of those boys came straight out of Felton Prison. We were a school, you know, last chance school for them. And when I took over that school, it was about making sure that you give them a different sense of self. Their sense of self had come from the fact that they acted out poor behaviour, so instead of judging them by their behavior. What we try to do is just listen, watch their behavior, scaffold them, and constantly create a different narrative in their life. So I remember I was once physically intervening with a young man, but instead of spitting at me, he spat away. And I said, thank you for spitting on the floor rather than spitting at me. And that's a tiny little step, but actually he was showing me some respect and I had to notice that. And funnily enough, I met that young man recently, and he's now a dad. He now owns his own uh, painting company. And I took him out for dinner recently, and uh, he reflected and he said, I always remember. He said, and I I said, what do you remember? He said, you're always, he said, so kind and so loving. And he said, you know the thing you didn't do? And I said, what was that? And he said, you didn't hit us. You didn't hit us back, and we felt safe with you. And so that was the starting point of a trusting, you know, wonderful relationship with a young person who is coming out of, you know, some really difficult backgrounds. When I was, uh, went into the school, it was a secondary school, it was a secondary EBD school, and they were teaching to the exam. But when I looked around, none of the boys knew how to read. And it was such an education for me. I called a parents' evening in my first couple of weeks. Not a single parent turned up. And then I knew what I had to do was completely turn that school on its head. So instead of having parents' evenings, what I used to do was hold a parents' evening in the parents' houses. So what I used to do is visit all our homes. Just visiting the home was an education. When you are saying to a child, you know, you need to do your homework, but there isn't a table in the room. There's nowhere for them to do, any, to, to do any written work. So what I did is I changed that school into primary classes. I then got primary teachers in. I focused on individual schemes of work for those boys so they could access reading. And it's one of the things I'm passionate about in Oasis now. In one of my schools, for example, in Salford, I've got 20 young people who are coming into my school, but they've only got a reading age of a five to a seven year old. So you then think about my journey over time. I was in your place. I couldn't read or write when I was going to secondary school. I haven't got access to any of the lessons. I don't really know what's going on. I remember children whispering the answers to me and I'll shout out the answer and they'd given me the wrong answer. So I'll get into trouble. For us in Oasis, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make sure that every one of our children can stand shoulder to shoulder with anyone in society. At the moment, you can go to a faith school, you can go to a selective school, you can go to a private school, you can go to a high performing selective school. So straight away, what you're creating is inequity. And so if I could do anything in British education, I would change admissions and I'll change that fundamental offer. And that way, people in communities would value your teachers, they'd value your local school because it's the only school that you've got.
1: As Oasis CEO, John oversees the work of 52 academy schools. What has he learned about successfully leading others?
0: What happens is that many leaders aren't themselves. They put on an armor of the way that they think they should be rather than being themselves and being authentic and genuine. I mean, I've tried to adopt four main rules. Be really honest. Don't make assumptions when you're working with people. Don't take things personally and just do your best. They're quite good for principles by which to live. So one of the things I've tried to do within our organisation is focus on self-awareness, being authentic, accepting yourself. If you have a high-functioning team who have very high values and best principles, then you can actually make that transformation across an organisation. Even when you're coming to little things, say for example, in education we're used to setting children up, we? we're used to putting them in sets. Rather than actually teaching mixed ability sets, a high-performing child should be able to apply their knowledge and their, and their wisdom working with a child with special needs to help them. Then you're creating integration in society because you're getting to, you're getting to work with anyone. And my biggest concerns at the moment, we have a divisive education, which is just focused on how you perform, not about how you then can collaborate and work with other people. And so we keep on talking about education, but the word that springs to mind for me that's most important is a sense of wisdom. And wisdom is about your character and your competence and about how you're applying that through who you are. Being honest, do your best, don't make any assumptions in what you're doing is a way of then allowing leaders to be the best they can be. I think the emphasis on children aspiring is really, really important. But I've got a really happy postman and I've got a very grumpy GP. Now I think it isn't just, it isn't just about where you get to, it's who you are. And it's having a sense of contentment, a sense of peace, a sense of fun in life. So I think that word aspiration sometimes is misleading or successful is misleading. So what does success look like? Well, success for one of our young people could be that they're trusting enough to work with a key worker for an hour a day and then go home again and then that builds and builds and builds. Fundamentally, when the children that we've worked with, which we've made the biggest difference with, every day is a new start. You don't build trust overnight. So what you do is every day is a fresh day. Secondly, what you do is you scaffold the child's behavior. So you notice what they're doing well And then the following morning you remind them of what they did well the previous day So they start in their own psychology They start to see themselves differently and they start to think about themselves differently and what they're doing So you're creating new neural pathways for the child and then that creates a sense of self-belief and self-belief can be tested by them failing and for them to be able to laugh off, you know a failure I think it's a huge success because we're we're, we're getting the children to have a new sense of self. In Oasis we have a very clear vision in what we want to be able to achieve. We want people to be able to realise their God-given potential. That's in who they are throughout the whole week, both in the implicit curriculum and the explicit curriculum. So we have in Oasis uh, Community Learning, we have a director, an ethos director. We've created a set of nine habits. And those nine habits are founded on, for example, compassion, humility, self-control, etc. And what we want to do is we invite those children to learn those behaviors all the time in everything that they do all the time so it's an invitation to who are you who are you becoming and it isn't just an hour a week so we have for example PS at PSHE half an hour every day at the beginning of every day but it's an invitation to remember who you are what you want to be able to achieve as a person in the same way so it permeates absolutely everything and it has to do that because then it's down to for example how will children share resources within a classroom how will they sort out a conflict And I think that's the degree of emphasis it needs. It needs to be embedded in in who we are every day. That's how you move children on, by moving education nearer the child, rather than asking to set a, a set of demands they can't reach.
1: Thank you to John Murphy from Oasis Community Learning, who overcame major challenges in his youth and then set about improving things for others. To learn more about the work Capita and Becoming X are doing in education, please check out capita.com forward slash becoming X.